is Moving Pictures. I'm your host, Brent Gunn. With me, as always, is Mitch. Mitch, how about you say hi? Hello, everyone. This is Mitch Kafelka, assistant community editor for Central Michigan Life and uh, po- podcasting partner to Brent Gunn. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, someone who I'm sure anyone listening is uh, more than familiar with. We have Dr. J. Uh, how, how about you say hi? Uh, hi, everybody. So um, to start off, uh, what do you do within the film department here at CMU? Well, I'm what they call director of film studies, which means that I sign up all the cinema studies minor, uh, which is part of our BCA program. And I just teach uh, classes in uh, university program uh, courses in uh, film history, uh, BCA 101, History and Appreciation of Cinema. And as part of the film studies unit, we do uh, a different genre class film genre class every semester, a different film director's class. Uh, so we sort of uh, uh, trade between uh, 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 Dr. Williamson, who also teaches uh, some of the genre and director's classes. They also teach a uh, graduate uh, class called uh, Film and Video Theory and Criticism. And uh, that's pretty much it in terms of my teaching profile. Now, this is actually your last semester here at CMU, isn't it? Gee, this could be almost my exit interview. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, how long have you been here at CMU? Well, um, I started off in the English department in the fall semester of 1976. And I taught classes in sort of intro to literature, freshman English, sophomore English, uh, American literature. And then... Um, a class in popular culture. Uh, and the reason they had me teaching that class is because my dissertation, which was from the University of Detroit, um, was on uh, a then-famous American writer named Norman Mailer. Uh, he was a best-selling novelist, one of the uh, earliest practitioners of what they call new journalism, uh, and was also sort of an experimental filmmaker. So uh, I had a secret plan when I decided to enter academia. I re, I, when I grew up, you know, I always told myself that I wanted to be a film reviewer like Roger Ebert, like one of those guys. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in fact, when I was at an undergraduate at the U- University of Detroit, I was both an English major and a jur- journalism major. And I wrote film reviews and I loved it. I said, I'm gonna, I wanna do this for a living. But then I uh, realized that there was very, very few opportunities to actually make a living out of writing film reviews for, you know, daily newspapers or, mag- or you know, monthly magazines. So I said, well, what's this next, next best thing? Okay, it's teaching this stuff, you know? And so I vowed to myself that um, uh, I wanted to sort of market myself as an academic. And uh, uh, I could either uh, sell myself as somebody teaching sort of traditional English classes uh, your composition classes and your, you know, literature classes, but also um, classes in popular culture, film and television. So the only really viable way of doing that is choosing a dissertation topic, which would somehow straddle these topics. Mm-hmm. And bingo, Norman Mailer made three experimental movies in the late 60s, early 70s. So... Uh, the dissertation took much longer to write. It turned out to be 500 pages long. And there was a chapter on his theory of filmmaking, his chapter on writing um, 
about various aspects of popular culture, his, uh, a chapter on his novel about Hollywood, a chapter on his book, Marilyn, a memoir uh, biography of Marilyn Monroe, and then a chapter on each of his three uh, experimental movies. And that's why the whole thing took years and years to, com- to, to complete. But at least I could peddle myself as saying, see, I could um, uh, teach traditional you know, literature-type courses, but also teach classes in pop culture and in film. And things worked out for me because they saw my dissertation, and I ended up uh, saying they, they needed somebody to teach a course in popular culture. So bingo, I got to do that. They said, well, you, you, you know about this film stuff, uh, so um, why don't you concoct a, a film class which combines literature and film? And sure enough, I came up with a class uh, called Literary Dimensions of Film, which is still on the books. They still teach it over there as part of the university program. You know, that was my baby. That was my creation. Yeah. And uh, because of that uh, pedigree, when the person who was teaching history and appreciation of cinema over in BCA, he suddenly got another job. They were kind of frantic and desperate. They said, we got to find somebody fast to teach this stuff. Well, here's this guy, Dr. J, you know, who uh, wrote his dissertation on movies. He's been teaching this stuff, so why not drag him over to BCA? And uh, lo and behold, uh, that's where I ended up in the mid-'80s. And then came the Cinema Studies minor, and that allowed us to teach even more courses in um, various aspects of different kinds of film. It's really interesting how um, you kind of are well-educated in all these different aspects of film. You talked about the history and you talked about the theory and you wrote your dissertation um, focusing on someone who's done experimental film. He was from the 60s, correct? So was he kind of doing things similar like Kenneth Anger or Maya Deren or people like that? Yeah, it's funny you should say that because that's exactly the kind of folks that kind of admired what he was doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, uh, he, his three movies um, are, are uh, not you know, widely known, although his three films are also now part of the Criterion Collection. Oh, yeah. For those of you, you know, who don't know, the Criterion Collection is the most prestigious uh, video collection, DVD collection, mm-hmm. uh, now Blu-rays. And uh, they they uh, uh, got all three of his films. Um, but then uh, Mailer also wrote uh, original screenplays for television miniseries. Probably his most famous one um, the one that p- people still talk about, you know, it's a, a miniseries for CBS called The Executioner's Song, okay. which was with Tommy Lee Jones mm-hmm. uh, as uh, uh, Gilmore, the uh, mass murderer. Uh, Mailer had a thing for writing about mass murderers, and uh, he was sort of fascinated with that kind of career criminal kind of mentality. And uh, 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 he, he wrote a couple other uh, uh, screenplays. Um, he did a movie which was meant to be sort of a, a modern-day film noir called Tough Guys Don't Dance, which uh, they, uh, he wrote the screenplay for also. And that was with Ryan O'Neill. It didn't do very well um, and was pretty much a straightforward kind of uh, uh, movie. Uh, the, his most interesting work were those experimental films of the late 60s. So what got you into film? Like, what, was it his work specifically that kind of got you no. interested in it? or was it No, that was my excuse to, to, to end up... Uh, having a career in teaching about this so stuff. So what, what were like the early films for you that really kind oh, of Oh, geez. Set you uh, how about 
comic books. Okay. DC comic books. How about a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland? Exactly the same kinds of comic books, the same kind of uh, schlock literature, and the same kinds of uh, uh, fa- the same kind of fascination with film that people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Uh, those are exactly the magazines that they read, you know, uh, and sometimes even wrote for. Um, um, the, so I'm, I'm in pretty good company, you know. Um, I was always sort of the uh, nerdy geek that knew too much about comic books, you know. Uh, this was um, ju- this was be- this was before uh, Marvel became the, the the big comic book uh, dynamo, you know, of the uh, '60s and '70s. You know, I was always into more into into DC, and uh, that was you know Superman, Batman, yeah. uh, Wonder Woman, that kind of stuff, and. Um, now, um, the same kind of films that I end up talking about when we talk about the history of Hollywood in the 1950s and 60s, uh, these are exactly the same kinds of films that I would, you know, go and watch in movie theaters. Um, I, I grew up in Hamtramck, Michigan, and the neighborhood movie theater was literally two blocks from where I lived. So as, as a young lad, I would clutch my 25 cents through my pudgy fingers and waddle over to the local movie house every Saturday and sometimes every Sunday and see a double feature of uh, Creature Features and Monster Flicks. Um, And that was how I spent my misspent youth. Uh, Mitch, you can probably talk all day with him about comics, can't you? Yeah, I can. (laughs) Um, Okay, here's here's the sad part of the story, okay? I, I don't even, I should not even confess it. You can always edit this out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but you probably won't. No, we won't. No, you won't. Uh, but this is very sad, okay? I was a collector. I'm an obsessive, collect, uh, obsessive collector of film magazines. And when I was a kid, you know, comic books and these monster movie magazines. I owned, in perfect condition, Every DC comic book from 1958 to 1965, mm-hmm. and then I was a teenager, and I was thought I, I was about 16, 17 years old. I'm much too sophisticated <laughs> to keep this stuff, you know. So I sold my thousands of copies of these perfect condition comic books for three cents each to the local comic book store. I could have retired by this point. We're probably, if I still own this stuff. We're probably going to cut the interview there. Uh, yeah. No, I'm yeah. joking. Wow. That's actually like, man, I'm very sorry that that happened. See, I told you it'd be sad. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting how you cite some of your early influences as not film, as, you know, comic books. I think that most people that get into film get into it through other art forms. You know, like I know, Absolutely. I know that I was really into drawing uh, yes. But before I got into movies, because I mean, it's all technically the same thing from you know a certain. It's a visual art form. Yeah. yeah, as I tell my students, um, film is both a visual art form and a narrative art form. The best movies tell their stories through pictures, through images, through sight and sound. Um, that's why you know some critics still maintain that maybe the purest and finest um, pieces of cinema are really silent movies, you know, because you have to tell the story totally through the visuals. 
mm-hmm. when I was taking a BCA 101 with, um, uh, oh, Kevin Corbett. Yes. Um, when we learned more about silent film, I think silent film's super interesting. And I think that it was a really pure form of the art. And I really wish that we could like bring silent film back into a certain way because. Well, uh, you know, uh, a film that is currently uh, one of the most popular films in the country is basically a silent film, a quiet place. Yeah. You know, uh, it uses sound brilliantly because there's almost no dialogue, you know. Um, and I, I find that really kind of interesting. Do you feel like a lot of films are kind of uh, crammed with, with a little bit too much sound, like a little bit too much dialogue and too much oh, absolutely. music? Yeah. Especially. Uh, you're, it's, they're often very heavy-handed, yeah. you know. Um, they're just, uh, you're told how to feel, you know. Uh, and there, there's no room for subtlety, you know. Yeah. And I kind of miss that, you know. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of the CGI spectacles, you know. Um, I, you know, as, I, as, you, as you can probably figure out, I love horror pictures, you know. Uh, and the best horror films are the films that are subtle, you know, uh, are much, uh, they're much more intriguing uh, by what they suggest, you know, what they imply, you know. And that was certainly true for the classics of the 1930s. And um, even films, the horror, the classic horror films that were considered incredibly gory and graphic, uh, like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which came out in the early 70s. Yeah. Now, if you watch that film carefully, you'll see that there is almost no violence actually shown in the film. Yeah. Um, they don't show you anything, you know. Um, everything is just right off camera. It's, it's that, the, the art of direction, the art of editing, the art of very subtle use of sound uh, and uh, cinematography, light and shadows. That's what makes it scary. Yeah. It's what they suggest. I taught a class in uh, modern-day film noir, and I remember seeing this film when it came out. It was seven, you know, with uh, Sam, Sam Jackson and Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. And when I first saw it, I was fooled. I thought, this is one of the goriest, most horrific, most graphic things that I've ever seen. And sure enough, when I showed it for a class and watched it and studied it a little bit more methodically, I realized, again, you don't see anything, you know? You think you see stuff. And uh, that kind of goes along with what I always tell my students is my favorite film of all time. It's the one film that really got me interested in the art of film. And that would be Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960. When I saw that film in the theater um, in 1960, I was like 12 years old. I still remember going with my aunt and uncle to downtown Detroit to one of those uh, aging downtown movie palaces in downtown Detroit, the Palms, the Palms Theater in downtown Detroit. And I still remember standing in the crowd of people waiting to get in. And Hitchcock was such a brilliant marketer and showman of uh, suspense. You know, he's the master of suspense. Mm-hmm. This was the first film in which he decreed that nobody would be allowed to enter the theater once the film began. Back in the day, when movie going was often very was was often double features, people would wander in, in the middle of films, and they would stick around and watch the, the uh, half of the film, 
then watch the entire second feature, and then watch the first half of the film that they had walked in on, yeah. and then leave. Um, Hitchcock subtly, subtly changed that. Um, he kind of trained the audience to show up at the beginning. And uh, uh, they even had posters stating, no one will be allowed to be admitted into the theater uh, after the film has begun. You know, yeah. We'll have armed guards. You know, It was pure showmanship. You know, And I still remember waiting patiently uh, with this crowd of grown-ups, you know, um, and you could hear the people in the theater, you know, screaming their heads off, you know, and everybody in this lobby was saying, wow, you know, what the heck is going on? You know, um, this must be terrifying. Notice how people are reacting to it. And that was, again, brilliant showmanship on the part of Hitchcock, you know. Yeah. Um, do you think that you're early kind of immersion into comic books, specifically like DC, kind of influenced what kind of movies you prefer? I mean, because when you read a comic book, you're kind of judging it on its own cinematography and how the yeah. images are kind of placed. Did you kind of, do you think that that kind of went over to how you watch movies too or what movies you enjoy? Um, to a certain extent, I think that's true. I was aware of the visuals and I realized that uh, certain uh, different artists will do different kinds of stories. So I was very aware of that. And I even had my likes and dislikes simply by looking at the visuals, you know. So uh, this was not a conscious process, but it was something that I, you know, absorbed. Right. You know? Uh, but it was really psycho that made me aware that there's somebody called a director, you know, literally calling the shots, you know, and, and saying, wow, you know, uh, here's a scene where this uh, woman gets murdered in a shower. And you, again, you don't see anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all done through the editing and through the music and all that. Um, uh, the, the, those students who take uh, BCA 101 from me, uh, the very first day of class, uh, uh, as a way of introducing the concept of direction and editing, I showed them a little piece of a documentary called Inside Hitchcock, in which uh, Mr. Hitchcock explains how he concocted the shower murder scene in Psycho, and you actually see it, and he explains what he was up to. And uh, I think that was a, a really good way to sort of shoehorn students into thinking about um, watching the films from a visual perspective mm -hmm. and therefore from a critical perspective. But you're right. It was really just looking at the comic books and realizing that certain artists did certain things in a certain way, you know, that, uh, you know, Again, it was not conscious. It was simply absorbed. Yeah. Right. Um, you kind of briefly touched on your students. And how have you seen students change in your time at CMU? How, how have you seen how students engage with film differently? Um, that's an interesting question because the ways in which people see movies have changed so radically uh, from when I first started teaching these kinds of classes. Um, I taught classes uh, just at the beginning of the video cassette era, you know, and um, the video projectors were these clunky mechanisms, you know, that often didn't work properly. There were several films that we still showed at 60 millimeter film, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and the, the stuff would always break, you know, and uh, it, it was awful. It was nightmarish at times. <laughs> But then, you know, the video equipment got to be 
uh, 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 a, a little more professional and uh, therefore uh, uh, viable for the classroom. Um, there's a certain irony involved, though, in this, because now, because of uh, these devices and these different platforms, students, if they wanted to, could be exposed to practically every film ever made from every era. But the irony is that even though these films are available through Blu-rays and uh, uh, streaming and downloading, um, with these uh, with these, these, these things like like, like the uh, like Netflix uh, and cable premium premium cable and all that, it's it's maybe uh, I'm just sort of uh, uh, getting old and cynical or something, but I. My, my feeling is that student tastes overall are more more and more narrow you know um, they're less likely to be engaged by we were talking earlier about silent film you know there's still some students that are really find let's say older films or silent films really fascinating you know for the reasons that we've talked about mm -hmm. um, but there seem to be fewer of them. Um, when they take a class like BCA 101, a lot of times I think some students are disappointed in that they think it's going to be a class in current movie trends. They think we're going to be watching Marvel Universe movies, you know, mm -hmm. DC Universe movies, you know, every kind of universe, you know, except our universe. <laughs> um, uh, and, and therefore... Uh, there, there, the 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 there's not that same kind of interest, you know. Um, I taught over the years classes in Chaplin, you know, Charlie Chaplin. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not so sure that a class like that would go over very well these days. You know, you know, when I took BCA 101, we watched The Gold Rush. Yeah, I showed that one too. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just speaking for my class alone, so it's only like a hundred or so people. But yeah. everyone seemed really engaged with it and loved. That's same with, really same with good the, to hear. The great yeah. dictator. People were cracking up. I mean, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, but but the I, last, I do agree with you though on the narrow yeah. thing. Yeah, uh, the last couple times it's sometimes painful to watch this stuff with these kids because you can hear paint dry. You know, like the last time that I showed the Gold Rush, nobody was responding to anything. Yeah. You know? um, and, of course, it changes. Every class is different. Uh, it, it's really the luck of the draw, you know. Uh, but uh, uh, I show, uh, you know, I know Dr. Corbett, one of Dr. Corbett's favorite movies is Woody Allen's Annie Hall, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I went up to him the other day and said, hey, guess what? I'm showing your favorite movie, Dr. Corbett. You know what? Nobody's responding, you know. <laughs> this is one of the wittiest, funniest movies ever made and nothing you know and uh he uh, got this pained look on his face you know yeah um i don't i don't know i always wanted to ask students um what do they find funny you know that's 
that's about as subjective as anything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like asking yeah. someone their favorite color. It's going to be a different answer every yeah. person. We've taught classes in comedy films. There's a class online that uh, uh, Professor Williamson teaches on romantic comedy, you know, and it's, you know, it's a fascinating class, you know, um, and uh, it's interesting to see how people respond mm -hmm. to, to these things. That's one of the, for me, that's one of the most interesting things about teaching film classes is that uh, you get different responses from different audiences, you know. Um, I, I still find that fascinating, and I'm going to miss it, quite frankly. You know. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine that. That would probably be a really fulfilling part of the job, like yeah. introducing students to films that maybe you love and seeing them positively respond. Yeah, I'm sure that would, like, you know, I. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's always going to be people that really groove on this stuff. There's always people that are going to be just totally bored. You know, and then there's the people in the middle that you can actually sort of. Um, sort of make them, uh, uh, again, expose them to stuff that maybe they wouldn't have bothered to see. You know? And how you talked earlier about how that perception is getting more narrow, I feel like that could be because most people who see films nowadays are seeing relatively an identical film to the last film they just saw. Yeah. Because yeah. in droves, most people go out to see these very, like, you know, glossy superhero um Blockbuster films. Yeah. Blockbusters have always been around. They've always been yeah. eerily similar to the last one. Sure. But I feel yeah. like now more than ever, that's the it's type a formula. of formula. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the type of filmmaking that's the most um pushed upon an audience. I feel like well, they cost so much money to produce. And they make so much money. Uh they have to. Yeah. They have to. Um I just heard a figure that just absolutely blew my mind. The uh the new um uh, uh, Infinity Wars movie mm -hmm. that's coming out, you know, uh, the event, you know, Marvel Avengers. Mm -hmm. They're making two of these things, right, back to back. Between these two films, to produce these films, that's not to market them or to advertise them or to put get them to theaters. To actually make these movies, they uh, Disney is spending upwards of five hundred million dollars. And that's not counting marketing, not that's counting, not counting anything yeah. except to make them. So it's yeah. it's a billion dollar movie, it's, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And that's what they're gonna have to make. And you know what? They're gonna do it. And that's the other thing about uh film uh films today is that um everything's gotta to appeal to a global audience, precisely because of these exorbitant costs. You mm -hmm. know? Uh and that does not lend itself to complexity. You know? No. Um, and, uh, and as you suggested, it does get to be highly repetitive. Because, like, if I go to an art museum, you know, I doubt that the intention of some artist there was to get the approval of the globe for their yeah. art. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. with film, often they're trying to appeal to the most, yeah, the most people because it's such a um, corporately minded you know, venture. What's good about uh, platforms like Netflix is that um, the minimally budgeted film, the slightly more experimental film, the stuff that maybe people wouldn't bother paying money for at the theater, you know, or wouldn't even show up at Celebration Cinema in Mount Pleasant because eight out of the ten theaters have got to show Marvel Universe Infinity Wars, you know. Um, at least those kinds of films, what they call the niche films, you know, 
uh, the lower budget films, they'll find an audience. You know, uh, there's some really good stuff um, on premium cable and on places like Hulu and Netflix. Uh, the the other major change you asked earlier about changes in movie going habits, mm. uh, and not just with younger people but with everybody, is binge watching. You know, because now that you've got the Netflix, uh, you can you want to watch one episode. Fine. You have the time to have a weekend to watch all 10, even better. You know? um, and that, the filmmakers are becoming more and more aware of that, too. You know? um, and I, you know, I, now that I'm going to retire, I'll have time to actually watch this stuff. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Where do you see the film industry going in the next couple of years based on um, trends you're seeing now, trends you've seen throughout your career of like studying it from an academic standpoint? I think what's, what's happening is that um, they are going to be spending so much money on a few potential blockbusters mm -hmm. that almost everything else is going to be sort of um, relegated to minimal releases mm -hmm. because they know there's going to be the Netflix and the HBOs and stuff. Um, people's movie-going habits are shifting uh, as a result of these different technologies. Um, I talk about um, the two major types of films, and I think this is going to become even more prevalent. Okay? Mm -hmm. There's going to be the so-called event film, okay? mm -hmm. films that have stupendous astronomical budgets and therefore have to be sold and marketed and merchandised and you know and you have to have sequels and you have to continue the series and have to have that repetitive formulaic stuff and they're going to throw vast amounts of money in producing and marketing uh, and that's what people are going to be sort of manipulated into seeing at theaters the idea is that you know you you know, you can't wait. You, you can't wait a couple months to watch Infinity Wars at home. It's not the same kind of experience. You gotta see it in the theater because you know what? Everybody's seeing it in theaters. Mm -hmm. Everybody's talking about it. You know, it's an event. Yeah. Everything else is gonna be a niche film. If you're a certain kind of moviegoer, um, horror movie fans, action movie fans, uh, certain kinds of comedies, there's still is an audience, but a much more limited audience. And those, some of them might even generate a lot of money, you know. Mm -hmm. um, every once in a while, a film like that, a niche film, becomes an event film, you know. Um, uh, a Quiet Place is an example of that, you know. The Conjuring, Paranormal Activities. Paranormal Activities was an incredibly low-budget film, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, and it was a stupendous box office hit, you know. Um, and um, so, of course, they churned more of them out, you know. Um, so that's what's going to happen. There's going to be niche films. Most of them will be sort of relegated to most people seeing them on home video monitors, you know. And then you've got the big, big event films. The, the, the event film, that the, the modern era film that started all of that was Titanic. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was the film that started it all. Yeah. Can I ask you what you think the cultural um, like consequence of that may be if we continue to let films get more and more kind of culturally, I'm not culturally, uh, corporately minded. You mentioned earlier your, yeah. your dissertation on you know pop culture. Yeah. Um, you must <clears throat> you must think that there's a cultural connection between film and you know culture and how film influences culture, reflects culture. Do you think that if we continue to let films be so corporately minded that we're potentially losing a kind of um, voice that we could be having? I'll tell you what's going on. Um, when I was growing up, you know, there were three television networks that were competing against each other, okay? Now you've got a galaxy of choices. And that's good in some ways. And that's not so good in other ways. It's not so good in the sense that the audience has become more and more fragmented. So that there isn't any common culture anymore. See? We don't share, um, uh, you know, it, it, it used to be that uh, a Michael Jackson album, let's say, or a Beatles album, you know, to go way, way back, or somebody like Elvis Presley. These people become cultural icons because um, everybody, or almost everybody, listened to them. Mm-hmm. And everybody watched one of three networks. But it's like FM radio, you know. It became so fragmented that... Each, it's, it's narrow casting, you know. You have to uh, uh, pitch your programming to what you realize is a very narrow, specific audience. There's no culturally shared values. That makes some, like the, like the kind of class that Dr. Corbett and I teach. Um, before... We used to sort of spout off examples, you know, and we know that the majority of students would have recognized the examples. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not true anymore. You know, um, for example, you know, I'm teaching a class right now on gangster films. You know, and I've got like you know, it's a fairly small class, which is kind of unusual because they're much larger. You know. I got like 26 people, you know, and I just, out of the spur of the moment, I just asked one day, you know, well, how many of you have ever seen The Godfather before? Two people. Hmm. Yeah. I said, you're taking a class in gangster films and only two of you have seen The Godfather. Well, we heard about it, you know. I, I find that fascinating. And again, it's because it's more of this narrow casting. Yeah. So with, with studios maybe realizing that the audience is so framed, which I agree with you, it is. Um, And I feel like the internet's kind of trying to pick up the pieces with that. But I feel like the reason why we have this explosion of Marvel and DC and the cinematic universe is because they know the audience is so fragmented, we have to make the most inoffensive picture possible to accumulate money. And I'm, I'm curious what you think about independent film and how maybe it has or hasn't really embraced the internet so much. Again, um, thank heavens for things like Netflix and Hulu and the rest of them, Amazon Prime, whatever, because uh, people can watch the independent film. They're at least exposed to them. Mm-hmm. And I'd prefer if people saw the stuff in theaters. You know, but that's not going to happen. 
what people are going to continue to see in theaters are the big blockbuster event type spectacles, you know, and that simply is the way it's going to be, you know, uh, and I find that I, you know, again, I find that kind of sad, you know, um, because uh, there's going to come a day, for example, uh, and I won't be doing it because I won't be teaching anymore. When I'll just say something, somebody will just make a reference to like the Wizard of Oz and hardly anybody will know what I'm talking about. You know, and that's sort of startling. But I think that's that's on its way. What What about movie theaters in general? Like in the next like probably 20 or so years, do you think those will become an obsolete medium? I think that um, as long as these big budget spectacles um, are actually you know, attracting an audience, that's what the theaters are going to be showing. You know? So the screens are going to get larger. The sound's going to get even better. You know? The pictures getting, the special effects will even get more dazzling. You know? um, and uh, I, you know, I, uh, one good thing about teaching the kind of classes that I teach you know, is that the screen that we have in our little auditorium it's pretty good, and I try as much as possible to show Blu-rays, and we've got wraparound sound, you know. So even the students who had seen, let's say, because they've taught the class in horror films too, they might have seen a movie like The Exorcist on television, you know, but they've never seen it on a big screen. And it's a revelation to them. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, my, oh, my God, this is, this is so intense. This is so scary, you know. Um, and that's what I... Uh, that's what I grew up <clears throat> when you realize that uh, there's so much more detail you can pick up on, not just horror pictures, but any kind of movie, really. Have you ever seen The Room by uh, Tommy <laughs> Wiseau? Yeah, well, I saw the Rift Tracks version of it. Oh, I, I, I went to a midnight showing of that in Ann Arbor a couple of years ago, yeah. and I saw it on a big screen. And just like you said, I can pick out even yeah. more horrible details about it now. Yeah, even, yeah, yeah. I, we won't it was like twice that. as yeah. funny. Well, you know, if you get a chance to ever see the Rift Tracks version, my favorite TV show maybe of all time was Mystery Science Theater 3000, oh, yeah. you know. And some of those guys spun off to doing the Rift Tracks. And I uh, I just love they do these concerts, you know. And they, um, you know, they're, 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 they're shown in theaters all over the country. And I, to me, that's an event, you know. Uh, it's worth the 20 bucks, you know. Definitely. Uh, um, you mentioned Psycho earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, what are a couple other your favorite films? Is that a um, curiosity? The Godfather films, Godfather and Godfather Part Two. Not, um, not Part Three. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, we didn't show that one this time around. I don't. I don't blame you. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, he was. Some of the themes that he was trying to do were a little a little different from the other two. And I think there's all kinds of reasons why it, it, it didn't come off, you know. Yeah. Um, Winona Ryder was supposed to play Al Pacino's daughter, you know. But she had to drop out. Uh, and at the very last minute, Coppola got his own daughter, Sofia Coppola, to play the daughter. And uh, this woman is not an actress, you know. And that was the weakest, most painful element of the film. And she's the key character, yeah. you know. Um, the irony is that she is now one of America's best film directors. Yeah, know? yeah. Uh, she's a fine, fine filmmaker. Um, 
And that was one of the reasons why uh, that film didn't do very well. So I liked the first two Godfather films. I'll tell you recently, okay, um, um, getting back to the horror film, a film that actually frightened me, in fact, gave me nightmares. And again, it's very subtle. There's not, there's nothing gory, no, you know, nothing, no, you know. It was a picture called The Witch. I knew you were going to say that. You knew that? Really? Yeah, I figured you were going to say The Witch. <laughs> um, that film was beautifully crafted. It was. Um, I know something about uh, Puritanism, you know, and that is one of the few films where, it's one of the few movies that are sort of historical period films where you really got a sense that the, this is the way people looked, the way they acted, the way they treated each other, uh, the way they thought, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, there's this Puritan family stuck out in the woods. They've been kicked out of the Puritan town. They've been banished. And you've got this God-fearing patriarch who's this stern father figure. And they got the, the mob, and they got the little kids, and they got the teenage girl, and there's, they're, in the, they're in the wilderness. And these people believed, not in, not in a metaphorical way, not in a symbolic way, but it's like the way we believe in molecules, you know, uh, and uh, viruses, you know, that out there in the wilderness are demons and witches and monsters, you know, that will, and, and devils, you know. Again, not symbolic, not some kind of Freudian, you know, uh, psychobabble. They literally believe that. And this is the world that they inhabited, you know. Uh, and I thought uh, they got the audience into that mindset. And that is incredibly difficult to do. Yeah. I'm actually taking a history of witchcraft class you through, did? through the right now through the religion department. And oh, then you know what they, I'm talking about. They had about. a screening of that, and like, yes, yeah. and it was like, it's surprising because I saw it when it came out um, yeah. in theaters with a friend, and yeah. um, it's surprising like how well they um, portrayed that era because like everything absolutely. down to like the beliefs of like what witches were at that time. Like, yeah, absolutely. We, we covered it in class, and it's like yeah. verbatim. I'm like, when it, before we even watched it, I was like, oh, that's like. That's what, we, what happens in The Witch. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They did their research on that mm-hmm. one. And the acting was so good. The mm-hmm. kids, the grown-ups. Um, and I, I literally had nightmares from that film. You know, it was it's really strange. I hate to admit it. Again, you're going to edit this, right? You're going to cut a lot of this stuff out. <laughs> that director's doing a similar film in the future about, um, I think, like maritime horror stories with Robert Pattinson. I believe he's also doing a remake of Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Now that... I will go see. <laughs> I yeah. figured you would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, you know, there's some good stuff like on Netflix streaming, and uh, you know, uh, there's a great show on right now on AMC. You know, um, it's a horror thing, and I think it's in ten, ten episodes, and they're on the third week. It's called The Terror, and it's based on this actual Arctic expedition by the British Navy on these two ships uh, to find the Northwest Passage. And they get stuck in the ice for years, you know. And in reality, these ships just disappeared. And uh, 
There's a really great horror writer named Dan Simmons who also writes really good science fiction stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he wrote the novel of Terror. It's like 800 pages long, you know, and it's about the ordeal that these sailors went through. And there's a supernatural dimension to this. This is that's very well handled in the novel, and they're doing an excellent job of the series. So I would recommend something like that. You know, um, uh, I love Sicario. Uh, that was a fine, fine mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a lot of good stuff. You know, um, uh, one of my uh, favorite films. Um, well, one good thing about teaching classes like this is that you can pick your own favorite stuff and throw it in there, you know, mm-hmm. and, and be gratified when they like it too, you know. Uh, one of my top five favorite films of all time, you know, uh, flopped when it came out in the mid-1950s. It was called Night of the Hunter with Robert Mitchum, uh-huh. you know. Um, it has a kind of fairy tale quality to it, and yet it is scarier than hell, you know. Mm-hmm. And just beautifully, beautifully done in sort of expressionistic black and white, you know. Uh, there are certain films. Uh, my wife and I uh, you, you turn on the cable, you know, and go through the dial. And if one of our favorite movies is on, I don't care how many times we've seen it, we sit down and watch the rest of it. Um, and that includes films like The Exorcist, uh, films like. Hitchcock's Cycle, Hitchcock's The Birds, Hitchcock's Frenzy, um, um, John Carpenter's The Thing, which I think is one of the best films of the 1980s. That is just a superb example of pre-CGI special effects. And even though it's a special effects film, it's a horror sci-fi film, mm-hmm. it's character-driven. Yeah. You know? The original movie Alien, a uh, Ridley Scott film with Sigourney Weaver, uh, that's a character film. You know? um, it's like this TV show, The Terror. You begin to uh, empathize uh, with these characters as you know, sympathetic human beings. You know? um, uh, that, the, that's the most viable kind of uh, suspense or horror. You know? Can I ask you what you're going to miss the most about teaching? Probably sharing some of the films that we've been talking about, really. Yeah, um, uh, I would often show the same films in like BCA 101 and I would uh, be surprised at sometimes either surprised in a positive way surprised in a negative way uh, about their response or lack of response you know? uh, uh, I would I would show The Gold Rush for example in the, in the same uh, week we would show uh, my all time favorite comedians were Laurel and Hardy. I just love those guys, mm-hmm. you know. I think they're brilliant. I think W.C. Fields uh, is brilliant, you know. Funnier than hell, you know. Um, so I'm gonna miss sort of sharing that stuff uh, with uh, with students, you know. Yeah. You have any specific post-retirement plans? I'm gonna binge watch a lot of movies and TV shows <laughs> and take the grandkids to Universal Theme Park in Florida and Disney World in Florida. That's my ambition. Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> Are you going to buy back your comic book collection? Next question, please. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, at that, I think we're probably going to cut the interview right there. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for, Thanks uh, for having all me. the years that you devoted here at CMU. I know a ton of people that have you know, told me that they're going to miss you. And, uh, like, wow. You're that's apparently a very, very treasured member here. Oh, wow. Well, that's, that's great to hear. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. That, right. that, that, that's all, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, uh, this has been Moving Pictures. I've been your host, Brent Gunn. This is Mitchell Kakalka. And thank you for listening.